Welcome to the last episode of OVS Orbit of the Obama administration. This is episode 23 of the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. I was surprised a few weeks ago when I read in industry news that VMware had acquired PlumGrid. I had no reason to expect that and I didn't know anything about it before it happened. But I was pleased to know that so many quality developers were joining VMware. I've wanted to do an episode about the IOVisor project, which is headed by PlumGrid and founded by PlumGrid for a while, and the PlumGrid acquisition gave me an easier opportunity to interview Brendan Blanco, one of the PlumGrid developers who works on the IOVisor project. IOVisor is all about BPF. If you want to know more about BPF, you might consider listening to episode 11, in which John Festeben from Intel talks about BPF on network edge nodes, or episode 4, where Thomas Graff from Cisco talks about Celium, which uses BPF to address the question of how to address policy in a legacy-free container environment that scales to millions of endpoints. There was also an episode of Packet Pushers that interviewed an IOVisor developer. I'll link to that in the show notes. On to the interview. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, I'm talking to Brendan Blanco, one of the most prolific developers working on the IOVisor project. Before we really jump into the discussion about uh, IOVisor, do you want to tell everyone a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. So, um, like I said, my name is Brendan, and I've been working in networking uh, as uh, my main engineering area of expertise for about 10 years. And I started out at Cisco doing load balancing, application load balancing, and did that for about five years. And then the probably the more relevant to the topics today, at least, has been the last five years at PlumGrid, where we worked to create a lot of technology that's in iAvisor and um, to create a software-defined networking solution for OpenStack. And I was one of the first employees at PlumGrid, and I worked there uh, on all the infrastructure and tool chains that we worked on. And as of a couple weeks ago, I'm now a VMware employee, and to continue some of that, this interesting work. Yeah, well, welcome to the team here. Mm -hmm. uh, we're excited to have so many good people on board from PlumGrid. I also hope that we can uh, take advantage of uh, some of the technology, uh, especially. Yeah, absolutely. I get people sometimes asking me about IOVisor and BPF, and there's a, a, sort of a lot of background uh, behind it from my, my point of view. So I was hoping that we could start by sort of talking through some of that, that background and, and where it all came from. And so I, I'm going to present it sort of the way that I've thought about it, but mm -hmm. maybe you have a very different perspective. So if I'm saying stuff that you think, well, gosh, that isn't right, then I'm, I'm sure hope you'll, you'll say that. Absolutely. I, I hope the discussion is uh, will then be even more interesting for your audience. Yeah, you know, actually when there's a, a disagreement, that makes things a little more interesting. So mm -hmm. we'll see. What I start thinking about when I think about IOVisor and eBPF is to, to go back to the, the, the stack that started getting built at Berkeley back in the early 90s. I wasn't actually paying attention to it when BPF came about, but when I look into it, it looks like everything started with a, a paper from Steve McCann and uh, Van Jacobson where they added uh, BPF to Unix at Berkeley, and then they published a, a Usenix paper about it. Yes, that's right, as per my understanding as well, and that you know predates my time in the industry, but uh, I've definitely spent a, a bit of time looking at the technology. And yeah, so BPF, Berkeley Packet Filter, comes out of that paper, and, and I think like, like a 
you know, a lot of good software comes from a mix of good design and, you know, good engineers trying to solve a problem. And it's, it's very, a very practical solution. And they're trying to solve a problem, uh, which was how to monitor networking, which up until that point, um, most of the monitoring tools were, were completely in user space. Uh, where it relied on copying data from kernel space to user space, which is you know, copying is, is always a, a slow thing. Memory has always been our, our uh, bottleneck in a lot of forms of computing. And they found a way to efficiently move the filtering mechanism. In analysis, usually most of the work will end up you want to drop the packet. You don't want to look at everything. You just want to look at a subset. So an efficient mechanism to drop the packets that you're receiving from the network is critical to being able to look at the important stuff. Um, so they designed a way to take these uh, filters and to um, run them in the kernel in a safe fashion. But and actually, there's a couple really interesting um, key points that they made. I want to just kind of read from, from that paper. So two of the, the major points that really seem very wise to me is it must be protocol independent. The kernel should not have to be modified to add new protocol support. That's one point. And it must be general. The instruction set should be rich enough to handle unforeseen uses. And they have a few more points about efficiency and uh, generality. But those two first ones have really ended up creating kind of a platform that stood the test of time. And we've certainly extended it, and, um, and now it definitely has some interesting uses. Yeah, so let's see. I'm not sure that we've exactly defined really what BPF is or, or what right. it was. Do you, do you want to say a little bit more Absolutely. about that? Absolutely. So, I mean, BPF, in my mind, it's a, an instruction set, um, an instruction set that user space has what does what it does, and the output is a set of instructions, a pseudocode um, that are then given to the kernel to kind of quote-unquote run. Well, it's, it's not really a pseudocode, right? It, it's... It, it is an instruction set. So it has registers, it has instructions, it has a, a small stack, and it has input data, in, in their case, the, the packet which these instructions are used to then iterate over, keep some small state, and come up with a decision. So it has jump instructions, um, add instructions, shift instructions, and uh, uh, load instructions. It, um, it looks a lot like a simple risk machine. Yes, yes. Um, it's And this is one of the differences compared to the filter algorithms that had come before is that it's a register-based code. And this mirrors very much the architectures and what makes it efficient to, to run these filters is that it can be mapped onto the registers of the machines that is being run on. Was efficiency a, a main concern at the time? I, I've only seen recently that people are concerned about making it run very fast. Efficiency was actually was definitely one of the concerns. This is like to put the effort to run something in the kernel usually is done either for API stability or for efficiency is you know a, a big driving factor. And this to have efficient packet capture was kind of the main driver. If you can't look at traffic fast enough, you're usually going to miss something interesting. That's a good point. So one of the things that I don't think you've mentioned yet is that it was very important that it be a, a safe language. Yes. I mean, any uh, operating system developer has an inherent distrust of the user space and the system calls that they're defining need to be secure against attack as well as ignorance or bad programming. And so the, the API that they exposed lets a, a code be uploaded, but the kernel has to protect itself against bad code. So it uh, doesn't allow loops. For instance, you can't create an infinite loop in this virtual machine, um, and it doesn't allow access to memory that's out of bounds. And it has a validator feature, which will take this instruction set and verify that it, that it adheres to these properties. And that produces something that's limited, but safe. So you can't do everything that a programmer would want, but you can do so efficiently. 
Right. I tend to think of BPF and its validator in sort of an analogy to Java and the Java virtual machine mm -hmm. and the validator that Java uses to make sure that the code is safe. Exactly. That, that's, a, that's a good analogy. Although BPF is more restricted than Java, of course. Yes, yes. Uh, because with Java, it's, it's okay if you create an infinite loop. And for the same reason, it's okay if you create an infinite loop in C. It's right. just a program that you're running. Yes, that's true. All right. So what happened after that, after it was implemented in Berkeley Unix, was that it, it gained a lot of popularity and it came to Linux uh, fairly early on, I think. I, I think in the 2.5 series, uh, mm -hmm. which is what I read about. Although I'm, I'm not clear late. on that history, so I'll trust your... Yeah, that, that's what uh, Linux Weekly News was, was claiming last night. It seems okay. relatively late, actually. But um, at any rate, it's now been there for, for many years, and mm -hmm. it's kind mm -hmm. of the, the standard way for filtering packets. So I kind of think of this as one branch of the early story behind IOVisor. And then there's sort of another branch of the story that I learned a lot about in grad school, and that's operating system extensibility. If you start reading academic papers from operating system research in the 1990s, then there's this big theme of extensibility. And there were a whole bunch of different approaches that the operating system researchers pursued. Like some people might even say that the loadable kernel modules that Linux has are one kind of extensibility. But most people tend to think of things like microkernels, like mock and, and L4 as providing one way. And maybe the, the exokernels and library OSs that came out of, for example, uh, Dawson Engler's research as, as another. And those, those actually seem to be coming back now. Uh, I keep hearing people talk about unikernels, and I'm not actually sure how those are a different approach. Maybe it's just a, a new name for it. But safe languages, like with Spin and languages like Modula 3 and, and Java, uh, were, were uh, another one of these uh, approaches. Um, is this sort of category of things something you, you've thought about, or uh, is, is there a clear uh, relationship to that uh, in, in IOVisor? Um, yeah, uh, well, personally, I don't have the, uh, the, the research background of you know, working on looking at the operating systems and, and unit roles, but it's definitely an applicable question. And as we were uh, looking at the IOVisor technology and, and the, I mean, the plum grid use case that we had around networking, there's definitely a, a couple of good analogies that we found that kind of led the way towards a particular design. And in one case that we've kind of used as a guiding principle is if you look at um, some of the, the hardware and specifically around uh, GPUs, it's pretty clear that modularity and you know, nice layered abstractions can uh, enable engineers to create you know, new powerful um, systems. For example, GPUs which have hardware and instruction set and vendors behind them which are creating you know, want to create value for themselves. They want developers to use them. They created SDKs, and you know these are pretty powerful parallel units. And then with the nicely designed SDKs, people start looking at them for AI, machine learning, computer vision. You know, now we're you know building self-driving cars based on the principle of a you know maybe running a GPU or a, GPU, a floating point unit to do types of processing that you couldn't do with a general purpose. But this is all hinged upon having a modular system where you can build a new functionality without having to wait for a hardware feature. Um, so this you know, nice layered abstraction is, is definitely useful for, for, both, for both parts. Now in networking, where, where my, I have the, the background, this has not played out the same historically. And, in, and this has kind of led to you know, several decades of cycles of you know, ASIC development and, and hardware 
um, hardware development for networking that creates kind of a slow cycle and, and vendor lock-in. And then you know, five years ago or so, when we started seeing a move towards software-defined networking, I mean, the hope was that some of this paradigm would change a little bit. But what I've seen in some of the solutions is that this actually isn't the case. You have a movement of network functionality from hardware to software, but it's still locked into kind of the operating system lifecycle, which is maybe faster than hardware, but isn't um, in data centers where we've kind of been um, trying to address this is it's still slower than the application has changed. So that use cases still change faster than the infrastructure. And so to have a modular network operating system, which rather than now being you know, on a single, single machine, now spans multiple machines, but if those multiple machines are still tied into a particular operating system lifecycle or a hypervisor lifecycle, you have the same problem. So the extensibility of a larger system as a whole is, is still um, something that, that we think about and we've kind of used to guide our how to, how to, where to create the layering and the, the modules that um, are useful for networking and other types of I.O., not just networking, storage, analytics, security, and so on. Um, that's why the I.O. and I.Visor, it's not NetVisor. I'm trying to trying to follow all that. There, there's a lot there. Um, mm-hmm. So would it be fair to say that part of the, the goal here is to allow the networking subsystem to be able to evolve separately and independently of the rest of the operating system to de- decouple it somewhat? Absolutely. That's definitely one of the, the goals. And that's the use case for BPF alongside that is some of it's coincidental and some of it's uh, intentional with the hope to build a, a modular system and an extensible system without sacrificing some of those guarantees that an operating system should provide, like stability or you know or a- API safety and, and so on. Okay. Uh, yeah, you, you've thought about this uh, much more deeply than I knew. It's really uh, great. Uh, I, I hope that we can gain some of that benefit. Mm-hmm. There is, though, some, I think if, if we're talking about operating systems, the some tension even within those desires in that I think there's a lot of the applications are tied to the OS in a way that is, some of the unikernels won't necessarily be able to provide. So like the POSIX API, the Socket API that um, a lot of applications now depend on to decouple those from the the network like the, the OSI stack that that won't happen like some a lot of those things i think are are kind of set in stone but the infrastructure underneath like to to be able to like um, with what VMware did with CPU virtualization to kind of move you know add a layer of separation and thus enable you know different scalabilities i would like to see that with with networking as well but you can't sacrifice the the APIs that the applications depend on yeah, that, that's absolutely true. I, I spent a lot of time in grad school working on things that came down to inserting places you could interpose on, on applications and on uh, software. Is that part of what this is useful for? It gives you another layer on, on which to interpose between, say, applications and the operating system between applications and the network? Yeah, yeah, it, okay. it does. And I, th- I think maybe we can go into a little more detail. Of- All right, uh, let's, uh, let's keep that in the, the back of our minds here. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've talked about the origins of BPF. We've talked a little bit about operating system extensibility. And I, I think that that gives us a, a place to talk about where these came together Around 2014, I think, uh, in in Linux, uh, BPF started growing toward something that that's a genuine operating system extensibility mechanism. I think up till then, it had mostly been used to filter network packets. Um, maybe it was used for uh, 
one or two other purposes in Linux. But around then, Alexei Starovoitov extended it and called it eBPF or extended BPF. You probably know a lot better than I do what got added at that point. Do you want to mention some of that? Sure. Um, so, uh, and maybe to get a little bit of history. So Alexei was uh, working at, at PlumGrid at the time. He and I had been uh, working alongside each other for, for a while. And in kind of this desire to get a, a, an extensible you know, software layer to run networking functions. Um, we looked for a couple different solutions, implemented one from, from scratch that ran in user space um, as part of the PlumGrid solution and a couple other prototypes. And the use of the extension of BPF for that was actually um, kind of just seemed right. It wasn't like something that we sought out to extend. Like we didn't know from day one that BPF was you know the right vehicle to this. But as it happened, it, it was kind of a, a ripe for, for some new features. So the extension of VPF to, for instance, go from 32 to 64-bit registers to, to you know, go from 2 to 10 registers, like these are, like this is a system that had been sitting with these kind of, you know, very simple needs for some time. And we had kind of this vision about what other needs um, we wanted to, to um, put on top of it. So additional registers, additional instructions. Um, you know, ability to jump forward and backwards with some restrictions. Um, and uh, then the, the two most important things are the um, ability to t call um, kind of a, a whitelist of kernel helper functions uh, with a, a very uh, uh, strict set of uh, calling conventions, as well as um, data structures for these programs to use. Um, for a TCP dump for use case, all you really need is a, a, the packet data and a scratch space. Um, for some of the, the use cases we had in mind, um, a generic data structure uh, concept is is kind of necessary. Um, so there are maps. There are access through, again, the, the helpers um, that the BPF programs can call. Uh, the, a map is um, kind of a generic name for the data structures that are exposed. A map can be a hash table or an array. Um, there is a ring buffer. There are tables for accessing CPU performance counters, cache misses and so on used for some of the tracing use cases. And these data structures are accessible and updatable from the programs as well as from user space. So there's a system call where all of the user space is able to interact with the BPF subsystem to um, load new programs, to connect programs together, and to to update the the tables and uh, to to interact with the the kernel uh, the kernel portion again all of this in a, a safe and verified environment that uh, the programs can be trusted. Uh, oh wow! So one thing I, I hadn't realized uh, clearly I haven't worked much with eBPF. I, I just heard people talking about it. I hadn't realized that that maps actually were a, a whole series of data structures. I mm -hmm. had this mm -hmm. idea that they were just hash tables. Nope, no. Nope. This is something that um, usually when um, there are new use cases that some of them may come as easily just as a, a new data structure. For instance, uh, recently someone was adding a, an LRU uh, version of the, of the hash table um, to be able to you know, not have to uh, run out of, of entries or to kind of keep a, keep a short history, as well as per CPU versions of all of these. Um, so that you can have uh, you know fast local copies in the case of you know keeping statistics and so on. I think that ab about around the same time we started people seeing people writing not just interpreters for eBPF in the kernel, but actual compilers that mm -hmm. uh, that compile the eBPF uh, instructions to uh, to native code. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so I think that there are, that those exist for several uh, architectures now. That's right. This um, so this the in kernel portion of this to take the BPF instruction set, which regardless of architecture can always be run in interpreted mode with some performance penalty. On some architectures, the instructions match closely enough to the, the hardware that you can just in time you know JIT compile them to the native instructions and be able to avoid any of uh, the interpreter's overhead. For instance, uh, like S390, which is the IBM Power 5 or whatever uh, chip, um, as well as x86-64 and ARM64 have uh, JITs, so you can run with minimal overhead. So what, what kind of performance do you get out of eBPF plus a JIT? So it's should be pretty close to to native. Like the the way that it, the code that it ends up generating, the native code is you know loaded, and the kernel kind of takes the compiled instructions and puts them in a read-only segment, and looks exactly like you know x86 or ARM code. So some of the performance will depend on at this point not on what the how fast the instructions can be interpreted, but how much work the program is being asked to do. For instance, how many you know, how many hash table lookups does it do per invocation or how many cache misses does it invoke when accessing packet data? That will overwhelm the profile for the program. So the, the instructions themselves will end up being a noise in, the, in most cases. I see. So it, it has more to do with what the program actually interacts with than with the uh, machine code of the program itself. Yes. Yes. Is that because there's a lot of overhead in, say, accessing a map, or is it just what the way it, it, it works for? I mean, it, it's. Uh, I mean, the, the underlying data structures are, you know, the, the same as you know all things within the kernel, depending on how the type of data structure, how much size you're using, you you have to pay the, the cost of accessing them. So if your array is large, you might have cache misses. If your hash table has lots of collisions, you might have to walk a chain and so on. Again, it, it all depends on your use case. So it's more it's, about, Which is, I think, a fair trade-off. Sure, yeah. It, it's more about the, the natural cost of what you're doing than, mm -hmm. uh, okay. So how much sophistication do these compilers typically have? Are they just doing one-to-one -one sort of mappings of instructions, or do they have a peephole optimizer? Or So the, the programs that get loaded usually are just a one-to-one -one mapping, and the BPF instructions themselves are a restricted set. So you won't be able to use you know, architecture-specific optimizations. We don't have vectorized instructions for instance. That's actually been a feature ask, and, and that may, may come in the future. Oh, really? What, yep. what, yeah. Uh, what do people want to do with them? I'm not actually sure. I, I don't know if these are coming at the same time, but I, there's been like some string search and you know, uh, various you know, data manipulation type of requests, so to be able to look at more data at the same time. Okay, that could even be useful in networking in mm -hmm. some cases, as mm -hmm. I understand mm -hmm. it. The programs are translated one-to-one, -one, but the step that comes before, so what happens in user space is pretty important to the programs and how they run. And so this is where iVisor has been trying to do a lot of work. So we have, we've talked about the kernel part. We haven't really talked about the tool chain part. And so on the on the user space side, if we go back in time, the original compiler for BPF, well, T let's say TCP dump might be the original compiler for, for BPF. Sure, um, but it's not very sophisticated. It's not very sophisticated, it has a packet syntax that it supports. And the, the instruction set itself, many people have you know, written using a, a macroized version to, to generate the, the bytecodes. And then that's actually 
um, approachable for, for some people. But when we started to upstream, we went first with a, a GCC backend support for a BPF. Okay, so you can run GCC and have it output a, a BPF object file, essentially. Exactly. And the, the backend for that, uh, BPF is, um, <coughs> since it's a, kind of a, a risk-like architecture, it's backends for, let's say, XCD6. A lot of that, the backend code can be reused, as well as the optimizations that are applicable to x86 are also applicable to BPF bytecode. So you can optimize these programs in the same way that you could optimize other targets. And so um, if you use a compiler tool chain out, the, the most used one is Clang and LLVM, you will get BPF bytecode that is not optimal, but generally better than handwritten. I guess we've started to, to talk about the tool chain, and I think this is where IOVisor really comes in. You have several repositories and presumably multiple sub-projects, but it looks like the really big one is BCC. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about BCC? Absolutely. BCC or BPF compiler collection. Kind of named after GCC, the yeah. GNU compiler collection. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the, the, I mean, like with all software projects, the, the use case has morphed a little bit since the original name was uh, conceived. But the BCC consists of a user space a toolkit for taking, taking programs uh, written in some front-end language, and we have actually support for a couple. And on the fly, uh, converting those into to BPF and enable you to load those um, into the kernel through the system call. There's you know, multiple steps to that project, and BCC is one part, the library that, that contains all that code. And the other part of that is a set of um, use cases written for some for networking and, and actually being able to build network functions. Um, we have some some examples um, that there aren't uh, production use cases for that in that particular repository. But there's also a set of tools and scripts for doing runtime analysis of your system for performance or general purpose monitoring. iAvisor, kind of the goal of the iAvisor project is to provide these types of toolkits to make it easy for people to develop use cases on top of. And the, this other set of, uh, of scripts is kind of the where a lot of people have started contributing back to add code to the repository, which is, is what we're looking for. Um, so I, I worked um, primarily independently starting about a year and a half ago to build that initial toolkit on top of Clang and LLVM to find kind of the basic structure to compile programs and load them. And then um, uh, we worked with a couple of people to start using these Python binding API to add these monitoring uh, use cases. A, little, a bit organic, but um, very useful. I was looking through your, your online documentation a little bit yesterday, and one of the things that really impressed me is that it's not that you have one or two scripts or tools. There's a huge list of, of all these 50 scripts. Or so? uh, yeah, 50 different tools. And actually, it made me feel, I, I didn't go and use it, but it made me feel a little overwhelmed. Like, uh, you know, where do you start? Uh, at this point, I, I feel a little bit the same too. <laughs> Those scripts actually are, I mean, the work of a, a couple. Um, a couple of people who are really interested in like performance analysis and, and systems monitoring and have a background, in particular, Brendan Gregg, who's worked at Sun for many years and various other places now at Netflix doing performance monitoring as an expert in D-Trace, which Sun is the, uh, Solaris was the, the way to do similar you know, performance, runtime performance monitoring. And the over time, he had developed this <coughs> set of tools for introspecting the, the running system and with BCC was able to port many of those tools over to BPF with a kind of a Python wrapper. Um, and that's the background for those is kind of has a long history. It was really nice to see some of those use cases ported over very quickly and with a very minimal amount of, of code. 
Wow. I guess this is kind of a side question, but but how how does BPF enable or support uh, system monitoring? What, what's the what's the connection there? I skipped over a little bit in the um, the explanation of what the kernel enables you to do with BPF programs. And this is um, one of the things that whenever I'm explaining this, I have to kind of backtrack a little bit. So it, they're not BPF programs. Uh, it's not a program in the sense it doesn't have a process ID. It's not um, a thread of execution inside the kernel. It's really still just a filter. Um, so you can't take a program and run it. It doesn't work that way. What you can do is you can take a BPF program or really a, a BPF filter and attach it to a kernel hook point. And this is where a lot of the work inside the kernel has also um, come over the, the last couple of years is to add more hook points. And it's gonna, you know, the initial hook point is when a packet is received on uh, a network device um, or on a socket. That's um, what you basically do is you just say, run a BPF a filter as a callback function when this particular kernel event happens. Um, and that model for attaching um, you know, BPF programs to, to different kernel functions is the, has, can be applied generically to lots of different use cases. And um, one of those is the kprobe hook point, where a kprobe is a kernel functionality for, um, uh, and it comes with a whole bunch of other infrastructure like ftrace and um, uh, trace points and so on. Um, kprobe is a generic functionality to mark a particular kernel function or address as interesting. And you can ask the kernel to, to log or to you know, maybe log with some statistical filter or to run a BPF program. As, and then the BPF program gets invoked every time that particular function is executed. So this is one example of, of one of the hook points that turned out to be very useful. And so what you do from the high level view is if you're writing one of these monitoring scripts, you can define a BPF program, which is, uh, which expects to be called every time a kernel event happens and is given the context of what the program was doing at the time in the form of, you know, what registers and their values. And then it's, um, with the use of some of the helpers, you can look at kernel memory and, and kind of decompose what the kernel was doing. And then from Python, you're able to just take those programs those BPF objects and say, I want this hook point to run whenever a disk IO completes or starts. And with those two uh, events, you can, along with a map, keep, for instance, disk latency information and build up a, a histogram of how long your disks are taking to flush your IO. It's kind of a, a, just a sm set of simple building blocks that all together with a couple of examples are have a lot of use cases are, are possible with those generic hooks. Okay, I think that helps to explain a lot about how BPF interacts with a, a running kernel. Mm -hmm. you, you made a point about terminology. Am, am I using the wrong term when I say a BPF program? Should I say a BPF filter or a BPF function? No, I, I use BPF program too. It's one of those things that, well, even BPF itself, I, I don't think is, is no longer an applicable acronym, right? We're not filtering packets. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's been some discussions about what to name it to, but it's one of the things that I think at one point will just become a three-letter acronym that you know has some history behind it, but can be used even generically. So BPF program, it's it's still a program. People use it that way, and it makes sense to people. So I wouldn't force a new terminology on it just for the sake of correctness. Would there be a situation where it would make sense to have a BPF kernel process to to actually run a process that that runs a BPF program? 
And that's actually an interesting question, not one that we've discussed in any serious way, but that's the kind of thing that the answer is more about if the code makes sense and has a use case and it's useful to more than just yourself, the patches in the kernel accepted, uh, that type of thing. It's, it's a very, very organic how, how the development happens and it's not a you know, matter of philosophy that it work one way or another. It's, it's more about good code and being useful. Oh, that sounds a lot like what I, I tell people uh, about Open vSwitch when they uh, yeah. ask, well, what about this? So I, I understand what you're saying. Find an application for it, then we'll make it work. Makes a lot of sense. One of the major languages that I think that BCC targets is C. So if mm-hmm. I've got a, a C program, what do I do to eventually get it into the kernel? From BCC, it's as simple as you um, you write the program as a, a Python string. You take the string and give it to a, a BPF, a BCC.BPF object, and then take the resulting handle and attach it to hook point of your choosing. If it's networking related, you might attach it to the ingress hook point of, um, of TC uh, for, for a networking function. If it's for analytics, you would take that object and attach it to, let's say, the, you know, this task. So we have, like a, for instance, a one-liner a Python program that, that works, where you can say, take my like a print k and attach it to the scheduler hook point of the kernel. And that's a one-liner in Python. You could, it's as simple as that. So more complex ones, it's really just you know, take a, a C string, load it inside of a, a Python object, and attach it. And then um, over the lifetime of the program, you'll, use, you'll get also handles that you interact with in a very Pythonic way. For instance, if, if it's a hash table, you get, um, it looks like a, a Python dictionary and you can read and write entries into that table and update them and, and or read from whatever the BPF kernel side program is updating and interact in that way. I, I think I missed a jump here at some yeah. point from, from C to Python. I would say it's part of this is a, maybe a bit of an imperfect solution, but also something that tends to just work um, in the, that the programs um, that you write are in C, but you, and you, you can't write Python and run that in the kernel. Python is really just the glue that um, stitches the programs, the filters that are running in the kernel together and interacts with the data structures. When I write a program and I want it to end up in the, the kernel via BPF, what kind of restrictions do I have to worry about when I'm writing my C? I understand that I can't have an infinite loop, but what are the sorts of things that are non-obvious and are likely to, to bite me as I, I get started in it? The programs that you can write, generally they have to be single function. You can use inline helper functions you can structure with, within you know, one text file, your various pieces. Generally what you can attach to a, a hook point is, is just one function. Um, and it has to have a linear flow of uh, linear termination. So as long as the compiler doesn't generate loops, or if it automatically unrolls loops, you can write loops. You can you know, write go-to statements. You, and probably you couldn't write a recursive function unless the, the compiler can span that out as well. So it has to be linear in, in control flow, uh, or sorry, acyclic in control flow. And um, you can dereference your, the memory on the stack, and you can dereference the objects that you get back from the map lookup functions, but you can't access kernel memory directly. You have to kind of pass your address through a, a helper function, and that helper function will validate it for you. It will validate the address and, and maybe give you an error if it's out of bounds or something. If you try to do any of these things that are illegal, generally the C com- 
the, the Clang compiler will generate BPF bytecode that is valid bytecode, but when you pass it to the kernel, the valid, the verifier will reject it with some hopefully meaningful, but generally not not very much error message saying what, what's invalid. And usually because it's these programs are passed through an optimizer, they could be kind of cryptic. And we're, that's one of the major areas of effort is to make this flow of writing a C program and uh, loading into the kernel you know, a smooth process. Is there an equivalent of something like debug symbols where the address in the kernel gets referred back to a line in your C program? So there was recent support added in the kernel to do that. You can put to kind of a no-op uh, symbols into the program that will get removed by the verifier where you can have, I think, a, a small string or a, an integer that you can put in there as a no-op using some of the spare bits of the code. But um, we haven't actually integrated that into the, the full toot chain. So it doesn't have all of the, the user-facing fa uh, user uh, features to get that information back. So it's a work in progress. Okay, but it sounds like the sorts of C programs I can actually run are simple enough that it, is that a common problem to, to find why it, it won't load? Not as good as I'd like, I would say. So it, it, it still can sometimes be painful. Clearly, I'm not going to be linking against, you know, libxml or Of course. Yeah, like the, it's usually contained within a, a thousand lines or so of, in, in the, you know, the, the hard cases, about a thousand lines or so of, of BPF bytecodes. Are there cases where the compiler can take my code that's apparently linear or acyclic and internally tangle it somehow and, and make it not verify? That generally doesn't happen, but uh, another one that does is because there's a fixed set of registers and a fixed stack and the, the compiler isn't necessarily have the same view of what's legal or not as the verifier, it may you know spill some registers and make the verifier's job complicated enough that it gives up. Usually it will uh, generate valid code, but it's too complex for the code that's in the kernel to verify. Um, so as we make the verifier more complicated to handle these various cases, it, we can't make the verifier itself unreviewable as a you know a piece of core infrastructure inside the kernel. So um, the verifier, like we're, we're working to keep that simple and safe, uh, you know, but still able to add new features. Right. It seems like the verifier is a, a very much in a, a critical part of the, mm -hmm. the whole thing. Mm -hmm. That if it isn't correct, then the whole system falls apart. Yeah. So we, we always tend towards conservativeness and correctness for anything that's in the kernel and the verifier. Is the verifier something that actually needs to be in the kernel? It seems like it's almost something that you could delegate to a, a daemon running as root. That's been um, asked uh, before, and people will have different answers to that depending on their level of paranoia. So to satisfy the most paranoid types, which which in the kernel community have have a pretty strong voice, usually we have to we have to keep that within the within the kernel because you generally don't trust the user space, especially you know the proliferation of containers and you know sh shared hosts and so on for, for some of these cases where you definitely want to use um, BPF to to solve some of the problems. So there's some tension there. So how complicated is the verifier? Is it using sophisticated algorithms or is it straightforward application of fairly straightforward ideas? It's, it's fairly straightforward, but there's been some, definitely some talk of, you know, making it use more modern concepts. It's, it's an old piece of code. So that, that may, it may change slowly and become, you know, maybe get some, uh, uh, collect some, um, um, some compiler features that that our user space compilers have. As of, for instance, um, there was a, a point at which someone took the verifier out of the kernel and compiled it as a library and passed it through the Clang and LLVM fuzzer tool to 
look for bugs within the verifier. And actually, one, they found they did find one bug after you know many, many hours of of running the the fuzzer against it. Um, so that but that that becomes um, you know kind of a, a diminishing returns type of. I remember talking to one researcher who was uh, talking about doing. Uh, some kind of a, a, a proof of correctness uh, mm -hmm. in, in this area. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, area of research, of, unfortunately, which I'm not an expert on. Uh, me neither. <laughs> in the OVS community, getting to something related to, to OVS here, uh, we're starting to talk about making heavy use of VPF and maybe even in the end uh, replacing the Open vSwitch kernel module by something uh, written in, in BPF instead. Do you have any thoughts on this? Does it seem like a good idea? Do you have, I don't know, advice or things we should avoid? Or I mean, I think it's a, a great idea. During my, my tenure at PlumGrid, we used BPF to build a whole slew of features from overlays, bridging, routing, to um, security, uh, NAT, working on load balancing, and including you know, NAT with connection tracking and various other things that are all, all implementable within BPF. So I would say that the types of use cases that are approachable with BPF are bountiful. And it's a nice, very enjoyable infrastructure to write in because you're able to go from the bottom to the top of an, a particular use case's implementation as a single developer. And this is something that you can completely control your own destiny by having the extensibility of, of BPF. Um, and having that, uh, I mean, I'm not an expert in OVS, so you, you may have that already, but I'm, that's something that I think is um, even more possible with BPF. And to add those, some of that you know, control of your own destiny within OVS is, I think, would be a, a very good thing. Yeah, we've found, thinking about it, that the advantages of BPF are not as much technical as sort of strategic and political, that we have better control over what we actually want to mm -hmm. uh, have running in the kernel because we, we don't have to go through the, the kernel networking community to get in features. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and let's I mean, just go back to the goal, right? You know, it must be protocol independent. The kernel should not have to be modified to add new protocol support. Absolutely. That's important to us, too. We do want to add protocols from, mm -hmm. from time to time, and it is inconvenient to have to modify and then upstream a change to the kernel every time yeah. we want a new protocol. And even supposing that were trivial, the, you know, kind of the sysadmin overhead of managing kernel versions and OVS versions and, you know, upgrades and so on can... You know, even if not impossible, is is always a can slow down your your deployments. Yeah, deployment and upgrade and management can be fairly painful when you're dealing with kernel modules. Hmm. I don't know what the comparable problems are with BPF, but presumably it's simplified in some ways. And then uh, maybe to to think of uh, future looking uh, use cases, one of the goals of, of BPF and what the, the the infrastructure should be able to provide is should be for instance, optimizable to hardware. And um, over the past uh, six months or so, we, we saw like the first uh, implementation of in-kernel uh, offload of BPF programs to, to a hardware NIC that came from um, an Aptronome um, smart NIC. So the, these types of things, which I think will, will be upcoming, are, are also very interesting uh, rationales for using BPF as part of, as part of a solution. 
Right. That's that's exciting. And that that brings me to one of my final questions, which is uh, what do you see as the, the future of BPF? What are the, the directions that it is going in or of Islevisor in general? Uh, what, what would you what would you like to see happen next? I'm quite happy with the way the community has kind of adopted um, BPF and Islevisor and is starting to build use cases that that we'd never dreamed of. Like the uh, tracing and analytics actually was something that didn't even occur to us until we tried to upstream the first time. And this is now it's kind of its own its own industry of um, that's starting to you know collect around this. So I'm looking forward to seeing this become um, kind of a ubiquitous way to do Linux performance monitoring and troubleshooting. and that that's that's one avenue that that i'm I'm actively in you know looking forward to seeing. And on the networking side, there's uh, and so for me, the, the networking side is something that's kind of I can see how the pieces will fit together, um, and there's a kind of a path forward, like what we were just talking about, maybe OVS, uh, Nix, and uh, hardware Nix, and so on. What's um, interesting to me is some of the non-networking use cases around um, BPF and, and IOvisor, right? IO, and to, there's uh, uh, to see how storage um, can be accelerated with BPF. Um, is something that's maybe a bit in the future, but but definitely worth worth thinking about. Um, and then probably closer to term would be um, using using iAdvisor for security, for securing containers, applications, um, for writing programmatic sandboxing. Did you know, for instance, that BPF is used within Chrome to do the sandboxing of um, some of its processes as it's you know rendering pages and, and interpreting various things. I, I heard about that. I was kind of pleased because it, when I read about it, it was actually very similar to a paper I wrote in grad school mm-hmm. where we had to make uh, kernel changes. Uh, not, I think not just write a kernel module, but make kernel changes. And I definitely wouldn't have had to do that if the, uh, if the, the feature that allowed you to interpose on system calls had mm-hmm. been there. Yeah, so that's I, I think something worth worth watching. There's um, some patches have been floating around, some some things have been added, so that that that's uh, interesting to watch. Definitely, for listeners who might be interested in finding out more, what's the best place for them to go? So iAdvisor.org is our homepage, and you can go there and get find direction to the GitHub page. So it's GitHub.com/iAdvisor. The BCC project is under BCC under there. If you're a developer, I would say um, go to the, the GitHub page um, in the readme for BCC. You'll find at the bottom um, links to our mailing list and um, as well, we have an IRC channel and those are probably the best ways. That's great. What's the best way for people to, to contact you with questions or feedback? So they can find me on, um, on IRC as uh, bblanco or uh, Twitter at uh, Brendan Blanco. And what IRC network are you on? Uh, we're on... Uh, uh, OFTC.net. All right, great. Uh, hashtag iAdvisor. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much uh, for all your insight on iAdvisor. Thank you, Ben. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org, or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.